Okay. Well, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a confession. <laughs> Is that a good way to start a sermon? Oh, did I? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I am someone that can oftentimes make many, many choices and decisions without really thinking about what God would have me do. I know, and I am almost envious of people who, who feel like they can hardly take a breath without consulting God, who seem to be so um, prayer-minded that at any decision and any big moment in their lives, their first thought is, Let, we need to pray. But I'll be honest, as, uh, as I get busier, sometimes that's my excuse. As I get older, I think I know better. As I get more, let's say, authority or responsibility put on me, and I feel that pressure, I can oftentimes make many, 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 many choices throughout the day and not once think deliberately, like on purpose, well, hold on, what would the Lord have me do at this moment? Now, there's a certain presumption, I think, that if you're mature in the faith or you're an older Christian, that of course the things you do and say and think and how you make decisions, it, it must be biblical or godly. And I, I suppose that in a way that's true, that my worldview, my frame of reference is a biblical one. So I don't feel like, I guess, I always have to go to God. I have to consult God. God, are you okay with this? Or even just pray over it or, 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 or to look at scripture. And so you, <laughs> you can imagine as I'm, I'm coming to a passage where uh, literally the text will say that the Israelites made a choice um, and they did not consult God. Uh, that pretty much was enough of a sermon. I mean, everything else is kind of <laughs> dressing, decoration for uh, this passage where God or the narrator really of this text uh, will say that they did not consult or they did not ask counsel from the Lord. So with that confession, perhaps you are in a similar place. Perhaps my testimony sounds similar to yours that you're so busy or you have so many responsibilities or you're so used to making decisions or you typically have sound judgment or, or, or you're just too lazy Find yourself not asking the Lord what, uh, what he would have you to do. This, hopefully, will be a little bit of a reminder of how important that can be. But I'll just say right here at the beginning, there's grace if you are one of those people. Um, I, I don't know that, you know, what kind of socks or lack of socks uh, decisions you make uh, needs to be consulted before the Lord. But at the least, maybe today we can be encouraged to stop and think, well, is there anything going on in my life right now that before I make the decision, I need to seek his counsel? That before I assume I'm correct and right about something, oh, no, I can't possibly do that, or, and, and, and say you can't do something, or before you commit to doing something, perhaps today there might be something the Lord might bring to your mind where you can say, let me seek the counsel of Yahweh. So I will... Not, I like to generally read the passage all the way through at the beginning of a sermon, but this is a very long chapter, so we'll kind of work through it uh, as we go through the sermon. And so we'll just read a couple verses at a time and, and just go through that way. Jo Joshua chapter 9, beginning verse 1. 
As soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea, toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, heard of this, that is, uh, the conquest at Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So if you look at the map in the back of the room or the map in the back of your Bible, um, the Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea on the west coast of Israel. And uh, on the Jordan River to the left and right of it, there's these mountains. But we're on the part of the map between the Jordan River as an eastern boundary and the Great Sea, the Mediterranean on the other side. I guess I should do that the other way. Um, and all of the ites, and I'm going to call them the ites because I don't want to list every single time Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites. So if I say the ites, I mean that list at the beginning uh, there in chapter uh, or verse 1. Um, all the ites were the people who dwelt in that land that God had commanded the Israelites to, um, to uh, destroy and to drive out of the land. Now, we have to understand as we come to this passage, these ites were not necessarily friendly towards each other, just like many other city-states and kingdoms at the time. They, they had all their own separate little kingdoms. But something happened when they heard about the fall of Ai. They decided at that time to band together. And it's a little bit curious because if you remember back in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1, it says that all of these ites, when they heard that Yahweh had dried up the the waters of the Jordan, so remember they crossed over the Jordan uh, for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. In other words, they're terrified. Their, their knees were wobbling. They were like jelly when they saw this, this uh, Israelite people coming across the Jordan on dry land. They thought, this is it. We're done. There's no almost point in fighting or resisting against it. So they didn't band together back then. It wasn't like, here's this great horde of people that are trying to uh, come and conquer us coming. We need to put aside our differences, and we need to come together as a coalition. We need to fight against them. They didn't do that then. They're too scared, too terrified. So what is the difference between Joshua 5 and now Joshua 9? Well, you have the fall of Jericho, which would only have served to make them even more freaked out <laughs> because they conquered that city with hardly lifting a finger. They just marched around it. But at Ai, something happened at Ai that prompted them to reconsider cooperating together. What happened? Well, you remember, they lost at Ai in Joshua chapter 8. They went against that city, and they suffered a humiliating defeat. And so, you know, commentators will say, well, maybe they're not as unstoppable, these ites thought, maybe they're not as unstoppable as, as we thought. I mean, they, they did eventually lose Ai, but they were stopped. And Ai was just one city. Maybe if we band together, they can be defeated. Maybe the Israelites have shown a little weakness in their armor. And if they can lose one battle to Ai, perhaps if we all gather together, we can fight against them. Now, what they didn't know <laughs> is that the loss of the Israelites at Ai wasn't a lack of man manpower. It wasn't a lack of military prowess, but it was because one man in the all of Israel had sinned. 
Achan had sinned against God. Remember, he took the, uh, the, the, the loot of the city that he was not supposed to take, that was supposed to be for the Lord. And this was the reason why. So this, this really is the only reason that they suffered any kind of military defeat is that there was a relational problem between the Israelites and their God, which you could almost sum up as, um, as a discontentment and disobedience. That's why they lost. Not, oh, their strategy wasn't sound or, oh, they didn't have enough people or weapons. They lost simply because they were unfaithful. So in a way... If you knew that, your best military tactic would be to cause Israel to fall into a bad relationship with their God, since the success of the Israelites was directly correlated to their faithfulness in their God. Um, and in fact, that becomes a strategy at other times in Israel's history. If, if that's really the condition, then all you need to do, if you remember like Balaam, it's like, well, you just send your wives to the Israelites. They'll become corrupted, and God will judge them. You don't even have to do anything. You just send your people over and cause them to stumble and fall, and their own God will judge them. But this is many years after that uh, time of Balaam, um, and so they're going to, it seems like, come together militarily. Now, having said that, we enter now into one of the ites, the Gibeonites, who has a different strategy. And And you might even say that this alternative strategy in dealing with the Israelites did have more of a spiritual component to it, that their strategy was not to go in, you know, guns or arrows blazing, but instead to come to them to parlay, to talk, to try and get a treaty going on uh, with them so that there could be peace. And you might say in a way that after you read this passage, you sort of think, the Gibeonites had a real cunning and wisdom and discernment. There's, in ways, it, to me, it parallels a, a parable that Jesus told of an unjust steward who, uh, who actually was very, living his life very dishonoring to God, but um, he started to make very prudent decisions in order to save himself. And God says, you know, if, if ungodly people can make such kinds of wise decisions, then what about Christians? What about you? Are you willing to be prudent just as much as someone who's about to lose everything is going to scramble to, to, to cover uh, himself? How much more prudent should we be? So I think some of this, we're also, supposed to look, we're also supposed to look at the Gibeonites and understand that they had a spiritual perception here that Israel didn't. In any case, uh, we see in verse 3 then, when the inhabitants of Gideon, uh, Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions. And we'll talk about what they did in just a second. Who were the Gibeonites? Well, in fact, the Gibeonites were, um, uh, or Gibeon was a great city, a royal city, even greater than Ai. Just look at Joshua 10 um, and verse 2. He feared, uh, well, one of the kings of uh, uh, of this land, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So here you have a city that was actually more impressive than Ai, and they had a warrior culture where everyone there, uh, every man there was a warrior, uh, and in fact, the city was only 10 miles from Ai, very close to Ai. So the Gibeonites were uh, a great city. And they're going to pretend that they're poor in just a minute. 
uh, as we'll read, but they were a great city, a royal city even. So a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of um, uh, military strength. They were descended from the Amorites, 2 Samuel 21.2 tells us about that, and we'll we'll actually go to that later. But they were descended from the Amorites, which is one of the ites that the uh, Israelites were supposed to uh, destroy. Um, and at the time of Joshua, they were known as the Hivites. And we're going to see that in uh, Joshua 9, verse 7. The narrator calls them Hivites. Hivites were also on the ite list to destroy. So in a way, they were kind of doubly on the list of people that the Israelites were to destroy and drive out of the land because they're both Amorites and descended from Amorites, and they are now Hivites. God commanded in Deuteronomy 7 that all of these ites be uh, driven out of the land and destroyed. Um, and, and I want to just take a minute to look at this. You don't have to, um, you don't have to uh, turn there if you don't want to. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is what Moses said. When Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you, mightier than you. And when Yahweh your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You can't make any peace with them. No deals, no, no peace treaties. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of Yahweh Yahweh would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. You have a repeat of that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which essentially says, if you don't destroy these people, they are going to influence you and turn you away to serve idols. So do not make a covenant or a treaty with any of these ites. Now the Gibeonites are going to show discernment and cunning because they understand that they cannot win this fight. They somehow know that if they were to go to war with Israelites, they would they would lose despite being a prosperous city, a wealthy city, a royal city, a city with many Men, some maybe they had spies going out and they saw what happened and they knew the real deal at AI, not like the other seven nations who think, well, if we get together, maybe we can beat them. They saw what had happened and they knew something supernatural is going on here. We cannot contend with them. And so they are out there and uh, here's what they do. They made uh, ready provisions, Joshua 9, 4, and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and, and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly and they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. A covenant uh, is is something like a contract between two parties in the ancient Near East, but it was more, uh, let's say, intimate <laughs> and intense than just signing a contract. The word itself means to cut. You would cut a covenant. Well, why would you cut a covenant? Well, it's because when you made this contract or deal with something, you would take an animal and you'd uh, sacrifice it and you'd cut it in half. 
and you'd put one half of the animal on one side and you put another half of the animal on the other side. And depending how intense that covenant is, maybe you got a few animals, one half on one side, one half on the other. And you and the person you're making this contract with would walk in between these two halves of this dead animal. And the point was, whoever breaks this covenant, this is what's going to happen. This is what should happen to you. May God bring this judgment that happened to these animals on you if you break this covenant. And so a covenant is a little bit more intense than just signing your name on a dotted line. It just, you know, imagine if uh, when you made any kind of promise with someone or a business deal, um, you had to get a rabbit. We're going to cut in half. We're going to put one side on this side, one on the other, and we're going to walk between them. So it's very much more intense, very much more um, personal, and the stakes, of course, are very much more real. It meant something to make a covenant. It meant your word is your bond, and uh, this was something that would be in the eyes of God. Something died in order to ratify this covenant. Now, the Bible, you could almost say that it is a book of covenants, that uh, God makes covenants with people from you know, Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, his descendants. God is constantly making these promises with people. And this includes the covenant that we just read in Deuteronomy that God made with the Israelites that they needed to destroy all of the ites. That was part of a covenant that uh, was being made between God and the Israelites. So the Gibeonites are using all of this to their advantage. Sometimes, somehow they're aware of all of this. They, <laughs> they dress down, they come out as this worn-out group of very far-off foreigners. Um, it just, it, it's, it's such a, a funny deception because um, they just you know, have all this like, beat-up stuff. It's almost like a play or a show that they're putting on. So part of me says, well, how is it not obvious, this deception? We'll get into that in just a minute. But... Um, this immediately sets off alarms. It's not as if this ruse immediately worked. You know, they come in, they look dusty and musty. All their stuff is dry and crumbling. They come to Joshua, who have made camp at Gilgal, which is is actually uh, just a little bit where they cross over the Jordan. So remember, they went from Gilgal to Jericho to Ai, then they went up to Shechem, and that's where we were talking about that uh, Gerizim and Ebal the past couple of weeks. Well, apparently they went back to Gilgal. That's where their base camp is. So they go. They travel about 30 miles to go to Gilgal. And, you know, they're you know, throwing dust and dirt. Hey, you got to get as, as dirty, look like as tired as possible. And we're going to go talk to them. And immediately <laughs> when they ask, we've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? In other words, how do we know you're not just one of the people here in this land that we're supposed to destroy and not make any covenant with? So they're immediately suspicious. Um, They know that they need to be wary about this. They can't just make covenants with anyone. And I think we have a, a kind of a first lesson about the decisions we make and the promises that we make without consulting God. You see, the Israelites were suspicious, but despite knowing that they should be careful, they kind of still indulged in that deception. And to be honest, we oftentimes know when we're going to make a bad decision. 
sometimes we, knowing we're going to make a de- bad decision is why we don't consult God, because we already know we shouldn't be doing it. But it's almost like, well, I know if I ask mom or dad if I can do this, they're going to say no. So if I don't ask, they can't say no. So, you know, it's a better to ask for forgiveness than permission kind of thing. So uh, it's clear that here they've got a sense that, that, that something is fishy about this. You know, their alarm is already alerted. And, and I think it's just something to be aware of as we stop and consider, you know, why we don't consult the Lord. You know, is it because you already know the answer and you don't like it? Um, that's one of the things I think probably uh, I need to tell myself more is, is the reason that I don't want to ask God about how I should treat this person or, or, or what I should do next because it's going to be, God's going to just want me to do something. It's going to be more work or I'm going to have to, you know, eat my pride and I, uh, or I'm going to have to set aside my ego and I don't feel like it. So God, yeah, I, I'm not going to consult with you. Uh, oftentimes sin works this way as well, is that there are sins, I think, that everyone is going to sit here and agree are wrong. You know, you, you shouldn't murder. You can't cheat on your, your husband or your wife. But then you start getting into areas of like borderline gossip. And you get into areas uh, of borderline lying. And all of a sudden, we can uh, be very um, easy to persuade about why it's okay in this case. Even though our suspicion is, we probably shouldn't do this. But we're kind of willing to be persuaded to do it. And that's sort of what's happening here. Despite their suspicion, he, you know, he, he continues on this conversation. You know, they, he could have just said, no, we're not going to make promises with nobody know how. I just, we're not going to do it. But instead, their response to this is, we are your servants, or really literally like slaves. They're, they're coming and they're offering themselves at the service of the Israelites, like no questions asked. And Joshua asks them, who are you and where do you, where do you come from? He interrogates them further. It's not a discussion that should be happening. It's sort of like the discourse with Eve and Satan in the Garden of Eden, where she kind of wanted to be tempted. You know, she wanted to indulge that desire for the fruit. So she kept talking to this serpent. I mean, she could have just stopped and said, no, I, you know, this is, this is wrong. You're trying to lead me the wrong way. But the fact that she kind of indulges the conversation tells you that at least sometimes we want to be deceived. We want to be like, believe a lie that might justify our sin or uh, we want to believe something that might get us what we, we want, even if we think, eh, that sounds a little fishy, because we want what we want. And so you get the sense here that when they offer their lifetime of service, we are your servants, oh, okay, then let's continue this conversation. Now, almost everything that they say is super suspicious after this. Verse 9, they said to him, huh, you know, where do you come it's a far away place. I mean, you probably never heard <laughs> from a distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. That, would have, that means the Jericho and uh, Ai. Um, and to Sihon, the king of Heshbon and, and 
to Og, king of Bashan, that was before they crossed over the Jordan, um, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet with them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins, they were new when we filled them. And behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Now, by this reckoning, I mean, like, I can go like, I don't know, two years on these sandals. Um, I'm sure they crafted very fine sandals in their day. You know, if you're telling me, like, this all smells wrong. This sounds like someone's trying to deceive you because it's too exaggerated. It's too over the top. I mean, it, it is, you're, you're saying that the bread, it takes how long for bread to get crumbly? At our house, it's like a few days if you're out. You know, they have refrigerators, the covers are traveling outside. So, I don't know, maybe they got a few containers. How long before it gets, you know, moldy and gross? In our house, like a few days. But then, like, that's not a really good measure of how much time has passed. Like, your sandals wearing out, that's, that could be a long time. Your garments, wineskins, they didn't just burst after a few weeks. Like, if you are coming from so far that you've worn out your sandals, your gear, all this stuff, you don't need to care about what's happening in the Middle East because you're coming from, like, New Jersey, you know, or, you know, you're, you're coming from Africa or China. I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course, but... If you're coming some, from so far, this sounds like you're trying to sell me something. This sounds like you are trying to deceive me. There is such a difference. There was such a difference between how they're talking to the Israelites and how Rahab spoke with the spies. I mean, you can compare it um, and, you know, on your own time. But, you know, look at Joshua 2 when you have a chance and read from, you know, verse 2 to verse 14. And that's where he t- she talks about how it's some of the same stuff. Like, I, I've heard about what God has done to the Egyptians. I heard about you. It's almost, he brings, she brings up Og, and, and, and uh, she brings up um, Sihon. She brings up some of the same things. But when you hear Rahab talk about it, it's not like, too flattering. It doesn't sound like it's rehearsed and tailored. This sounds like a sob story, like a kid that's trying to persuade a teacher why their deadline should be extended. You know, oh, I had this happen and this happen and this happen. Can you believe it? Six different things happened. My, you know, every, everybody died in my family. It was, you know, crazy. And then my computer, I lost it in a tornado. Like everything's wrong. You know, look at all of our stuff. It's all dilapidated. It just sounds off. But when you hear Rahab, there's urgency. There's a confession of helplessness and humility and fear. Rahab is desperate and truly and admittedly fearful. But the Gibeonites, they come off like salesmen. You know, come on, make a covenant with us. We'll give you, I'll give you anything. We'll be your slaves forever. I want to say probably had, you know, used car salesmen tell me, you give me a call anytime, I'll do anything for you, right? That's a salesman tactic. You call me anytime, I'll do anything. I'll mow your lawn for you. I've, I've had, you know, salesmen tell me that kind of thing. This is like salesman tactics. And it should have 
seemed very, very obvious that you can't trust these people. But they wanted to indulge the deception. They, it, it, it works. <laughs> and I think, again, <laughs> most of the time when it comes to the things that we do without God's approval, without consulting God, we normally can't argue that we didn't know better or that we were deceived. On some level, especially if you've been a Christian any amount of time, but even maybe if you're a baby Christian, we, we know what's right and what's wrong. It's just we want to be deceived. It's, it's, a, it's a choice sometimes, not every time. I mean, there are times when you truly get deceived and, and bamboozled and swindled. Okay, I know that happens and I've heard those testimonies. But many times throughout the day and, and the weeks, normal everyday life situations we get into, we are often making a choice to listen to those deceptions because we want to believe it because then we will get something out of it that we want by trusting someone other than God. And, and that's what happens here. This is almost like a ludicrous, unnecessary story. And then verse 14 is just so shocking. So the men, that is the Israelites, took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. I mean, they just got finished saying that all our stuff is junk. Bread is gross and moldy. Our sandals are worn out. The wineskins are busted. What is there to take? Is it just junk? Is it, you know, I, so I, I got kind of two takes on this. It, it could be that it legitimately was they found out the most like worn out stuff and they, you know, they just put it together. They had, you know, stuff, you know, get that stuff from your attic that no one's messed with for, you know, 70 years, bring it down. Or maybe some of it was, was kind of nice and they're just saying that it's old, but it was kind of nice because they want it. They take it. Um, either way, either way, it was foolhardy. It was beyond acceptable that after they had just conquered Ai and they were allowed to take uh, loot and treasure from Ai, that they would now look at these dusty, musty travelers and take all their junk and say, yeah, this is worth making a, a, an entire peace covenant treaty with you because I, you know, yeah, I guess all this stuff is sort of worth it. Um, it, was, it was so uh, foolish to risk their own covenant with God and not do any research into who these people were or any kind of fact-finding before they made this very, um, uh, very like sturdy covenant with these strangers and was it for a small bribe is was that all it took to have them run the risk of making a bad covenant was their dry dusty bread enough to exchange for a lifelong commitment to their peace well it sounds foolish and dumb and, and everything else but guess what when we commit a sin it's often that same paltry satisfaction that we are content with at the expense of our faith in God. When, when men lust after a woman or look at porn, they're exchanging just the tiniest, cheapest delight for the banquet of God's table. That is the way that sin is. So it is supposed to look 
foolish in our eyes that they would ever think to make such an important decision without consulting God, probably knowing that there was something suspicious about this. But if we look at our own hearts, we do the same thing. I can't tell you how many decisions I've made today, even, about about what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, who I'm doing it with. And I didn't pray. I didn't think about it. I didn't consult God. I just assumed that I must want what God wants because I'm a relatively faithful guy. Well, I'm also a relatively easily persuaded guy too. I mean, I, I, I really am the kind of guy that if a salesman has a really good story and a pitch, like, yeah, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. I mean... <laughs> I'm that way, and then I'll sit here and be very stalwart with you about you know, false teaching and doctrine. And yet, in my own personal life, I can be so easily persuaded by a bad deal because a person is, is telling me kind of what I want to hear. We are much the same. So we have the question at this point that we'll address. What does it mean to, for us to ask counsel from God? Tell me how to do it, Pastor Ray. Well, I'm obviously not an expert now, so because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm confessing to you that I have such a struggle with this. But here's what I want to work on. You can work on it with me. I'll work on it with you. We can keep each other accountable. Um, but there are four ways I'm going to uh, talk about uh, how we receive counsel from God. And we're going to do it relatively fast because we kind of got to wrap up uh, Joshua 9, the story. Um, but The first way that we get counsel from God and seek his counsel is when we look in his word. Psalm 119, verse 24. Psalm 119 is entirely about the word of God. It's it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses dedicated to one subject consecutively, and it, it is about the word of God. It's about the Bible. So Psalm 119, verse 24 the psalmist writes, your testimonies. And that's another, just another word, a synonym for the Bible. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The word of God. We, you see, Joshua had this distinct, unique relationship to the Lord where he'd show up and at times directly talk with him. But as, the scripture, as we have now the scriptures, as now the, the, the canon of scripture is closed, all of all of the, the, the words of God have been revealed to us. Where do we go for counsel that is absolutely sure, objective? Any one of us can go to it and point scripture to each other. It's here in this book. This Bible needs to be where we go for our counseling. And at this point, I will say it's fair to say that uh, as you grow in the faith, yes, you should be getting better about having a biblical worldview, about knowing where passages is, about understanding God's thoughts on different subjects. As you study the Word of God more, you should be growing closer to the character and and nature of God and understanding it and applying it. So yes, there is a sense in which if you have um, been studying the Word of God for a while, that yeah, you're probably making decisions out of a biblical worldview. But we can always grow in that. But, I mean, do you... Can anyone here say, yeah, I have the whole thing just not only memorized. I can say it backward. I can say it forward. Every single part of it I've applied in my life. I don't think any one of us can say that. There's always room to grow. There's, uh, there's, we should not have an assumption in our own heart that we know the word of God so well that we can presume upon what it says. There's also the hidden danger of uh, misusing scripture, that you can know scripture in certain verses 
but not be applying them. You know, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, what does that, what does that mean? Does that mean I can go out and um, I can jump off a building and expect to fly because I can do all things through him who strengthens me? Of course not. But we can abuse a passage as well. So if we want the word of God to be our counselor, it means a rigorous study, understanding of the words of God and uh, knowing how it applies in our life. Secondly, Isaiah 9, 6. And you know this verse, maybe if you don't recognize that particular passage reference, but Isaiah 9, 6, very famous Christmas passage. There's a hint for you there. Um, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So who's, our, who's this speaking of? Jesus Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity. Who is he in one of his many titles and roles? He's our Wonderful Counselor. We can look to Jesus and see how he deals with people and situations in four Gospels, four different tellings of the life of Christ, four different viewpoints and perspectives on his perfect, holy life. We can see how he interacts with enemies, with friends, with children, with adults, with widows. We can see how he deals with political rulers and powers. We can see how he deals with lepers and tax collectors. We can find in his life a counseling for our life and seeing how Jesus lived sinlessly when he walked upon this earth. Of course, there should be, we should be eager. And of course, all of these things I'm going to say, you know, is, is relative to the word of God. That's why I put that one first. You don't know the gospels and Jesus apart from his word. But uh, when we look at the gospels, think of it from the perspective of teach me, Jesus, how to make decisions in my life, how to make good choices how to make good promises, how to avoid bad ones. Show me in the life of Christ how I can deal with difficult situations and circumstances. You know, Jesus, be my wonderful counselor. He is the one who's going to rule all things. He must be abundant in wisdom. He must know what he's doing. He's sovereign Lord. He must have a plan and purpose. How can I know it? Let Jesus be the one for, to whom you seek counsel. Of course, we can also find counsel in the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. I think it's the King James that uses uh, the phrase, um, the counselor. But here it says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your rem remembrance all that I have said to you. Um, the word for comforter is sometimes translated counselor, other times you may have heard um, uh, comforter, or I'm sorry, helper here. Um, you've also probably seen as comforter or counselor. Um, sometimes they'll t uh, people talk about the paraclete, <clears throat> which is a Greek word. And it's the Greek word that's there, that's being translated counselor, comforter, helper. Because that word kind of has a very broad range of meaning. It's someone who walks alongside life with you and is able to bear your burdens, is able to teach you, is able to uh, help you in life. So the Holy Spirit is working in us. That we can find counsel, and when we, um, <clears throat> when we come to the Holy Spirit and, and ask for wisdom from Him, he's, that's exactly what He's there for. Uh, we, I think you could say we... we um, access or we uh, open ourselves to the Holy Spirit when we pray, 
when we fill ourselves with the word of God and meditate upon it, um, when we uh, consider the things that God has done and, and, and actually stop and think, all right, you know, Spirit of God, please, you know, I, I've read your word. I know Jesus Christ has given the perfect example. Now, Holy Spirit, help me to live it out. Show me where I can apply this personally, actively to my situation. And that's what the Holy Spirit's there for. You can read more about it, but um, in uh, John chapter 15, 16, uh, 14, 15, 16, but uh, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is, is counsel us. He is God himself living in us. He can teach us what to do. He can uh, help us know where to go, make good choices, avoid bad ones. That's the very reason he's there, to sanctify us. Lastly, we can counsel each other. The people of God can counsel the people of God. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Seeking godly counsel also means that we seek out godly relationships with others and let people speak into our lives. Paul writes to the Romans, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The word instruct there, nutheteo, it means counsel, admonish, correct. We are, Paul's very confident that they can do that to each other, to be a source, a sounding board uh, for advice. That, that we who are Christians and love each other and love the Lord uh, should be able to speak truth and say, you know, you know, thanks for telling me about that situation you're in. You're probably right. You're suspicious for a reason. It doesn't sound like a good choice. And to affirm you, uh, it sometimes helps to get outside of your head because, you know, you might, you know, sometimes you get very insecure. I can get this way sometimes. And just every, every decision seems bad. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Everything seems like a terrible idea. And so to ask someone else who's not in the middle of your situation to say, well, you know, here's some questions to ask about, you know, making decisions that honors the Lord. Or have you thought about this or looked at it from this perspective? Or, you know, that option and that option, that, that's, not, that's unbiblical. Maybe you didn't know, but here's a passage that, that says why you shouldn't do that. None of us here have it all and know it all. And so God in his wisdom puts us together as a body to meet each other's needs, fill in gaps of knowledge and, and wisdom and understanding. So let's make the most of that. We are uh, fully able, Paul says, to give that kind of counsel to one another. So in many ways, as we see here, the word of God, the, uh, Jesus Christ, an example in the gospels, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and each other. All of these are means by which God intends to bring us counsel uh, I don't even necessarily means when I know it prob I know more than likely it means exactly that Joshua should have asked God about this situation. Um, but you can find plenty of examples in the Bible where a faithful brother or sister comes, like Nathan, to David to confront him about his sin. Well, you can find many examples of someone being the means by which God brings consultation, help, conviction admonition. So we can be that to each other. Um, uh, these are all ways, wonderful ways, God would have us seek the counsel of God and not fall into the trap that Joshua and the Israelites fell into here. Now, at the end of this, uh, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, 
after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Again, the city was about 30 miles from Gilgal. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, um, Chepirath, Beeroth, and kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Now, my mind thinking, but they get to live. <laughs> they didn't get destroyed. I mean, that's, that's why they did it, <laughs> Joshua. They wanted to not die. Uh, they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for certainty that Yahweh your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. It's Deuteronomy that we read earlier. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of Yahweh to this day in the place that he should choose. There's a sense of irony behind this whole incident. By making a covenant with the Gibeonites, they ended up breaking their covenant with God. But God still held them to their promise because they swore by Yahweh. They swore to them by Yahweh, the God of, of Israel. It's said twice there. God, you might ask yourself, why would God want them to honor this deceptive covenant? After all, in America, if it turned out that when you made a covenant with someone or a contract, if they lied about something as a part of that contract, they could be liable for that. Not always, but they could be liable for lying to you um, in that contract. Well, God holds the Israelites to their word because they swore it by Yahweh God of Israel. And God cared about his name being attached to this covenant. God, by invoking God in their covenant, they brought God's character, his nature into their relationship to the, to the Gibeonites. Even if they were deceiving them, to now act against them would do, would do this. It would make God a liar because they swore by Yahweh God, we're not going to hurt you. Oh, you lied to us. Now we're going to hurt you. They could say, oh, that says how much you think about your God and making a promise to your God. A foolish promise, but made in the eyes of God is still a promise to keep. You can marry someone Make that covenant before God and man. And it doesn't matter if you find out he snores or she has really bad morning breath. God's name is now written on that marriage. So when people see it, because you made that covenant for God and man and attach God's name to it, now he needs to be honored in that covenant that you made. Even if you didn't, you're, even if you didn't know this or that. You don't know everything. You never know anything about the person you're marrying. You don't. And things could change. So, 
the point is when you make that covenant with God, at least in the context of marriage, you're, you're bringing God's name into that. And so you cannot do harm or damage to the name of God. God cares how we treat others. And that how we treat others directly reflects what we think about God and what they will think about God. So it does matter as we make our own decisions and choices in life to con- consult God. Because even if you're not making a formal covenant, you know, who here is going to be cutting an animal in half, you know, anytime soon and, and doing this? But everything, God says, let your yes be yes. Everything that we do now reflects our belief in God and who we think God is. So we better counsel with the Lord so that in everything we do and how, all how we treat people, it is going to honor him. Now, to be fair here, when the Gibeonites give the explanation to Joshua, they do seem a little bit more contrite. They admit that they knew all along that they were aware of God's commandment that they were to be wiped out. They were afraid. And there is some sense, I think, in humility here when they say, you know what, we're in your hands. Do to us whatever you think is good and right to do. But they probably knew, though, because they came up to these cities. They're going to destroy them. Like, wait a second. These look like the people that we just made a covenant with. They didn't kill them. So they already knew they're not going to kill us. But see, that testifies. The fact that they could say, we are in your hand. Do with us what you seem is right and good. They already know they're not going to kill them because they didn't. So it did testify to Yahweh. They did see that when these people made a promise in the name of God, they are going to keep it. It did have an impact on the Gibeonites. They saw firsthand the power of God because while any other nations might have still came and conquered and destroyed. Ah, so we made a bad promise. You know what? We're a bunch of, uh, you know, looting, pillaging, you know, uh, Huns anyway. We we can make a promise and we're not going to keep it. They saw that no, because they feared God, they are going to stay their hand. That God actually was saving them and sparing them. Not the Israelites, but God. And the Israelites' fear of God is what kept them to their word and was protecting them. Keeping your word is a very admirable thing in the eyes of God. That's why we should consult with God before we make any kind of choice. What's the end of the story of the Gibeonites? Well, they do become slaves. They get to live. They live as slaves. They cut wood. They draw water. In other words, they kept their end of the bargain. So they kept their deal. It's a two-part thing. We'll be your slaves. You keep us alive. So they did it. That's commendable that when they saw how they kept Yahweh, uh, their, their oath to Yahweh, they said, all right, we'll keep our end of the, the bargain as well. And this lasted for about 500 years, eh, like 400 years or so. Because 2 Samuel chapter 21, if you want to jot it down for sake of time now, but 2 Samuel chapter 21, we're at the time of of David and King Saul. King Saul is on the throne. This is the time where, you know, his relationship to David is kind of, you know, uh, up in the air. And this interesting thing that happens in 2 Samuel 21 is that there's this famine that comes into the land for three years. And so finally David asks the Lord, what's, what's going on here? Why is there this famine? And Yahweh says there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Who was the first one to breach after about 400 years of this covenant? 
Saul. That's how you know he was not a true king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. He broke this like 400-year-old treaty, and he slaughtered the Gibeonites. It doesn't even say where or when this happened. There's no record of it. It's just almost in passing. But you got to know the backstory. You got to know Joshua 8 to have this uh, be understood. So when it's found out <clears throat> that, um, that he had, uh, verse 2 says, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of Yahweh? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, that seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Yahweh. And the king said, I will give them. So seven of Saul's descendants had to die for breaking this peace treaty uh, with the Gibeonites. You can get into the politics of it. The Gibeonites ended up coming under the tribe of Benjamin. Um, Saul's of the tribe of Benjamin. So maybe there was like, you know, if we just get these guys out, they're just taking up our land here. Could have been all that. Again, doesn't get into any of the details. Uh, but David honored the covenant that was made here by Joshua. 400 years, and that promise was still to be taken seriously. The word of God cannot be broken, and our promises cannot either. So we need to look at it. Think of it that way. For us to not seek the counsel of God, it's an important thing. It's a significant thing. We shouldn't take that lightly. Um, at the same time, we can also understand there is an atonement for sins. Maybe you have made a bad choices and bad promises and you've broken your word and you've made promises to God that you didn't keep and all these things. Well, God is true, though every man be a liar. There's grace that can cover our sin. Atonement can be made, not the, by the shedding of the blood of our sons or our son's sons or any animal, but the son of God. God has made a way. That's how he showed his ultimate promise. That's how he made the ultimate covenant with humanity. It's not by the blood of lambs and goats that he split up, but by the blood of Jesus Christ as he hung upon a cross. He made the ultimate promise to love us, to forgive us, to take care of us. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his own goodness and his love and his mercy. And you can have a relationship with that God if you repent, if you turn away from your sins and you believe in Jesus, you can have that forgiveness. If you're a Christian Today, I hope, maybe along with me, you might consider, well, maybe I have been a little bit um, capricious, a little bit lazy in, in consulting the Lord. Join me then in going to him. Join me in, in um, asking the Lord, what is it that you would have me do? Uh, reveal to me my own motives and thoughts, and let's seek the counsel of the Lord together. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, your word. Thank you for the timelessness of your truth. If you hold a covenant and oath for 400 years, you do it for 4,000, 40,000, 40 million years into eternity. You are true to your word. And we want to be like you. We, and the only way we can uh, make promises that, that are going to last and uh, keep our word and things that are good and right and noble is if we consult with you. And so remind us to do that, Lord. I know we can take it so easily for granted, but you're there always listening, waiting for us to reach out to you. You're not 
um, annoyed when we come bothering you for, for questions and answers to questions, you'd love to hear us have a heart that, that wants to seek your wisdom and guidance. So help us to remember that too. And Lord, thank you for guiding and leading us. I know you do, even when we're not always being so aware of it. But thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. You lead us into green pastures and still waters. We pray, Lord, for our time of fellowship now as we eat and drink. May it be to your glory. May you be honored and praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.